Good morning. <laughs> In 2007, my wife and I, we built our home. And when I say we built, I mean that really loosely. Um, we hired people to build our homes. Because as I've told you before, I am absolutely helpless when it comes to any type of construction projects. You give me a tool, I will break the tool, and then somebody else will have to come and fix that. Um, I'm just helpless at it. I'm really good at looking at something and saying, yes, I'd like to purchase that from you. Here's my credit card. And by the way, can you come and install it for me? Because I have no, no, no use other than that. But the problem, here's the problem, is my wife is the daughter of a shop teacher. And she has watched entirely too much DIY programs. Do-it-yourself programs where they make you think, they lead you to believe that anybody can build anything and it will come out looking great. It's an utter lie. The whole thing is a charade. But she's convinced we can do it. And so when we were building our house, we got to the point where we needed to put down wood floors. And I just want to do carpet, but what do I know? I thought, I could handle this. I can staple things together. But she says, no, we're going to do wood floors. So we buy the wood floors. And you know when you're laying the wood floors, it's all supposed to be staggered so everything comes out nice. So she leaves me alone for five minutes. And I'm just talking to a buddy. She runs to get something to drink. And she comes back. There are four pieces of wood floor. All the butts are connected together. And I, and I had already laid it all. I stapled, put it all in, nailed it to the floor. All this, it's all done. She comes back and she looks at it and she says, five minutes. I leave you alone for five minutes and you completely screwed this up. It's right in front of our sink. So every time she walks by the sink, I mean, we're talking 15 years later, she calls it the conic corner. She's like, here's the conic corner again. You screwed it up. So I'm, I, this is why I do dishes every night, because she can't stand standing there and, and doing the dishes. So I do them. You know, it's an, it, it, what we learned through that process is, first of all, do-it-yourself programs are uh, just a lie. And I am convinced they've led to so many divorces. Um, just convinced of that. But then secondly, how you build is really important. And you gotta take, you gotta make sure and you gotta take care that what you're building will last. You take the time, you do it right, so that what you're building eventually will continue to stand long after you're gone. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you can go ahead and turn there. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul's gonna offer correction to the church in Corinth because of how, how they had kind of got a little bit off track, and then, in, and then encouragement to the believers in Corinth to make sure that they're building with care and that they're building, on the, they're building a solid church. Not, the, not a physical building, but they're building a solid church based on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is where we're going to be this morning. Now, if you're just joining us in our um, study of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, um, let me give you a little bit of background before we jump into the text, because otherwise you'll be a little bit off track about what's taking place here. So you got to remember that Paul, the Apostle Paul, had planted this church in Corinth in about 51 AD. Plants, actually, let me rephrase that. 
He plants the gospel. I say this every time we talk about it. He plants the gospel in the soil of Corinth in 51 AD. And what happens as he's communicating the gospel is a good number of people came to faith in Jesus Christ. A good number of them were genuinely converted to Christ. And a Christian community was then birthed. This brand new Christian community. Right there, smack dab in the middle of pagan, uh, pagan Corinth. And Corinth, as I've told you, was completely immoral. It was pagan, it was pluralistic, immoral in all sorts of ways. But this little Christian community in the city of Corinth was birthed. And Paul, what he does is he spends the next 18 months teaching and leading this young group of Christians who, again, had genuinely converted to Christ. And yet, um, they were living in a culture that was very similar to our cultures, pagan, pluralistic, immoral. And so though they had been converted to Christ, they were being swayed back in by their culture. They were being swayed by the ethos of their culture. And again, we could look at that and think, well, those idiots, but is that not also true of us? We've come to Christ, we've been converted to Christ, and yet oftentimes our culture, the ethos of the culture in which we grew up in, it sways us. And this is what was happening to the Corinthians. And so after spending 18 months with the Corinthians, Paul leaves to go to, go to Ephesus and plant the gospel in the soil there. And he gets a report from Chloe's people. He gets this report while he's in Ephesus that there's some things going on in Corinth that weren't good. The church was struggling. Um, the church was struggling a little bit, and there was quarreling within a church. Can you believe that? Have you ever been a part of a church that there was quarreling? No, heavens no. Well, this was the case. There was some quarreling that was taking place. Well, what happened? Two things primarily had happened. First of all, they started breaking up into factions over their favorite preacher. Instead of focusing on the message, the message of the gospel, the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Corinthians who loved oratory, they started focusing on and aligning themselves with their favorite messenger. So rather than focusing on the message, they focused on the messenger. And some, so some of them said, I belong to Paul. Others said, I belong to Apollos, who came after Paul. Others said, I belong to Peter. So one group said, I'm of Paul. Another group, I'm of Apollos. Another group, I'm of Cephas. Cephas is the Aramaic name for um, Peter. And uh, so they started breaking up into these factions. And you see, all of that is finding their identity in a leader rather than in the Lord, and that's a mistake. Now, it's not wrong to have a favorite pastor, of course. We all know this. But it's wrong when you start finding your identity. You start finding your hope in a person, in a human leader, rather than the Lord. And so the Corinthians, who again, we've talked about this, who as a culture, the Corinthians as a culture, they loved, they had a competitive spirit, they loved oratory, and these things led to division and disunity within the church. And when there's disunity and division within a church, what it simultaneously does is it begins to undermine your witness within the greater community of Corinth. And that's what was taking place. So they were breaking up into factions over their favorite preacher. And then secondly, they started boasting in the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of the cross. And so Paul opens up in chapter 2 and he says, oh, you want some wisdom? This is the material we looked at last week. He says, you want some wisdom? 
He says, we actually speak wisdom. The Christian message is a message of wisdom, but it's not the message of wisdom from this age or from the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He says, there's a wisdom in Christianity that is eternal. It's eternal wisdom. And it's far more lasting. And the wisdom centers on the cross of Christ. Because it's at the cross that God's plan of redemption culminates. Which means it won't, and and the message, the wisdom of the cross, it won't be found by human reason. You can't reason your way to God. You can't rationalize your way to God. Well, if that's the case, how will anybody come to know God? Only if it's revealed by the Spirit. Look at chapter 2, look at verse 7. Paul says, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages, so it's eternal, before the ages, for our glory. And it goes all the way into the glory, all the way into our glory, resurrection life. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, now catch this, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. It's a revelation, and the Spirit has to bring it to us. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So what he's saying is it's not that we discovered the truth on our own. Unaided human reason will not lead you to God. And that goes against everything we believe in our culture. And it's, it goes against even when people who are converted to Christ, they, they fall right back into the ethos of our culture that we can figure all of this out on your own. And it's not the case. Unaided human reason will not lead you to God. It has to be revealed to you by the Spirit. And this is what the Spirit does in regeneration. He takes the truths of who Jesus is, and he makes it glorious in our sight. And that's the only reason. Once the Spirit does that, he takes the message of a crucified Jewish person on some nondescript hill in a nondescript um, culture, nondescript country, and says, this is actually the message that will save you. And when the Spirit takes that message and makes it glorious in our, in our sight, that's the moment of regeneration. He opens our eyes so that we can see and appreciate what's taking place through the cross. And Paul says only a person who has been born again by the Spirit can actually understand the things of God. It's just amazing. And more than that, more than just understand the things of God, they can actually know God. And they can know God's purposes for their life. A natural person, meaning a person who has not been born again, does not have the Spirit residing within them, they can't accept the things of God. And so Paul tells them, stop boasting in the wisdom of man. He says, if you want to boast in anything, boast in the Lord, because it's only through him at the cross, by his Spirit, that you've been born again, that you've been saved, that you've been forgiven of your sins, that you've been grafted into the family of God, that you're assured of eternal life with God. And now what's going to happen in chapter 3, Paul's going to say, he's going to look at the church, and he's going to say this. He's going to say, positionally, you're a spiritual person. 
because you've been born again, because you have the Holy Spirit living within you, positionally, you're a spiritual person. He's just contrasted the natural person with the spiritual person, right, in chapter 2. Now he's going to look at him and says, positionally, you're a spiritual person. But in practice, you're not living like one. Positionally, yes, you are a spiritual person because you have the Spirit living within you. You have been born again. You can't lose that. But in practice, you're not really living like one. Well, why would that be the case? Well, Paul gives them three reasons, and this is the outline for the message this morning. Paul's going to tell the Corinthians these things. Uh, The Christians in Corinth were first, verses 1 through 4, they're confused on Christian maturity. They're confused on Christian maturity. That's in verses 1 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 17, they're mistaken on Christian ministry. They're they're, um, mistaken on Christian ministry and what the role of a pastor is, primarily. And then in verses 18 through 23, he's going to say, you're misled on Christian unity. So confused on Christian maturity, mistaken on Christian ministry, misled on Christian unity. So he looks at the church and he says, essentially, he says, you're better at being Corinthians than you are at being Christians. So let me offer a little bit of correction. Let me offer a little bit of instruction. Let me offer a little bit of encouragement. Um, And it's needed correction for the church in Corinth. And by the way, it's needed correction for the church in America. Because the church in America, to a great degree, resembles the church in Corinth. To a great degree, we resemble the church in Corinth. Because oftentimes, we're better Americans than we are Christians. And so this is needed correction for us as well. So with that, let's jump into the text. And first thing he's going to tell them is that you're confused on Christian maturity. Look at verse 1. He says, But I, brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, notice how Paul starts this. Uh, Notice how he begins the correction. He addresses them as brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. And that's an important distinction to make. He knows positionally they're in Christ, but in practice, they're still operating like the world. And however, he comes alongside of them as a brother or a sister in Christ. He comes to them not with condemnation, but with correction. And by the way, if you're ever called upon to bring correction to another believer, uh, you, you must adopt the posture of a, of a brother or a sister in the Lord. And then Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're to speak the truth in love. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do here. He comes alongside of them as a brother and a sister. He's going to bring correction. There's no doubt about that. But he's going to do it in love. He's going to help them grow into Christian maturity. And he says in verse 1, he says, I can't address you as people who are walking by the Spirit. I can't address you as people who are demonstrating the unity of the Spirit. You might think you're really spiritually mature, and the Corinthians did. Well, why did the Corinthians think that they were spiritually mature? Because they, we'll see in chapter 12, they had tremendous spiritual gifts. And they thought because of the spiritual gifts that the Lord's given them, that automatically made them spiritually mature. So you might think you're really spiritually mature, but you're not, he says. You're actually more like infants in Christ. They're spiritually immature. And apparently, 
That's been the case for some time. Some time, because the Christians in Corinth, according to Paul, ever since he's been there, they've been spiritually immature. Look at verse 2. He's, verse 2 in chapter 3. He said, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now, you're not ready for it. Um, he uses this well-known ancient analogy. Um, he says, when I was with you, I had to give you baby food. Because you weren't ready for, you, you weren't yet mature. He says you weren't mature. And then he goes on, he says, the second part of verse 2, he says, uh, and even now, five years later. Think about that. Five, probably five years goes by. At least three goes by. And he says, and you're still not ready for mature food. You're still a baby. Now, it's one thing to have an, a baby mindset and have to be fed baby food when you're an infant. And babies are great. We all think they're cute, they're lovable. But it's an entirely different thing when you have an infant mindset, a baby mindset, and you're still making a mess in your diapers when you're 5 or 25. It's a completely different thing. And Paul's saying, you should have grown up by now. You should be way more spiritually mature than you are. Well, how can Paul tell? Well, because of how they treat one another. Look at verse 4. He says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another one says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? He says, you're behaving just like the world. You're living in the flesh. He's, so how can Paul tell that they're living this way? Well, be, by the way that they love and treat one another. Real Christian maturity, which is what he's telling them, you're not spiritually mature. He says, real Christian maturity gets expressed relationally. That's how Christian maturity actually gets expressed. It gets expressed relationally. Wait, are you telling me that our relationships, how we love and treat one another, will reveal our discipleship to Christ more than our theological acumen? Yeah, absolutely. Theology is great and good. It's wonderful, in fact. But how it gets expressed, how maturity gets expressed, is relationally with one another. If we can agree to disagree on some things, if we can say, I can see how you got to the position you got to, I disagree with it, but as a brother and sister in the Lord, we're going to remain fine. We're going to work together for the, for the common good of the body of Christ. That's how it gets expressed. And what Paul's saying is, you guys aren't living this way. Look again at verse 3. He says, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's saying relationship. It's all about the relationships. And if you don't have relational health, you're not spiritually mature. Regardless of the gifts that you have, um, you're not spiritually mature. That's what Paul's saying. And this is exact, by the way, it's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 13. He said, what? He said, love one another. As I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. And Paul says, the, the factions that exist, the breaking up into factions, the jealousy, the strife, it reveals that you're not actually walking in the Spirit. Because the Spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. And Paul says the fact that there's strife among you, the fact that there's jealousy, 
The fact that there's these email blasts going back and forth about which preacher is better than the other preacher, this all tells me you're not actually walking by the Spirit. You're way better Corinthians than you are Christians. So he says you're confused on Christian maturity because healthy, mature Christians will seek to bring unity and stability to the body of Christ. By the way, that's one of the great benefits of this church is for the most part, we are a church, you are a people that are seeking to bring unity and stability. And that is a tremendous gift. I'll speak as a pastor and for the elder board. It's a tremendous gift having a body of Christ that says, our goal here is to bring unity and stability to the body of Christ so that the witness can continue to go out. And now what Paul's going to say in verses 5 through 17 is going to again offer correction by saying you're mistaken on Christian ministry. Look at what he says, verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now look at how he starts this section. He, he begins by asking the question, what is Apollos? And what is Paul? Not who is, not who is Paul and who is Apollos. He's getting at the function rather than their uh, identity. It's the function. He's talking about the function rather than their identity. And Paul says what they are is servants. They're servants. That's what they are. Don't elevate them to something they're not. They're simply servants. And this is what pastoral ministry is about. It's about the Lord using them to bring forth conviction of sin and then conversion to Christ. That's the role of pastoral ministry. He goes on. He look uh, Verse 6 again. He said, I planted and Apollos watered. But it's God who gave the growth. He says, why are you elevating these guys? Why are you finding your identity in these guys? They simply did the task that they were called to do, but it's actually the Lord who gives the growth. And he uses, notice, he uses an agricultural um, metaphor. He says, he planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So all Christian ministry, all Christian ministry, is essentially men and women bringing their lunch pail to the job site and working hard on behalf, of, uh, on behalf of Christ. But that's it. And it's the Lord who brings the growth. And the agricultural metaphor is accurate because ministry is messy. If you've ever been involved in ministry longer than a week, it's a lot like marriage, actually. It's a lot like parenting. It gets real messy real quickly. Uh, and the more involved you are in it, the more messes you see. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who is one of my favorite authors, recently passed away. Uh, about a year ago, he passed away. Uh, in his book, The Pastor, he says this about Christian ministry, and it's perfect. Uh, Peterson says this. He says, pastoral work consists of modest, daily assigned work. It's like farm work. Most pastoral work involves routines similar to cleaning out the barn, mucking out the stalls, spreading manure, and pulling weeds. This is not, any of it, bad work in itself. But if we expected to ride a glistening black stallion in daily parades and then return to the barn where the lackey grooms our steed for us, 
we will be severely disappointed and end up being horribly resentful. And he's up, uh, Peterson's absolutely true. Ministry is messy by nature, and the further you get into it, well, the more manure you end up shoveling. It's just the nature of it. It's a messy work. Because you're, mess, you're, you're dealing with lives, and, and lives, all lives, everybody's lives are messy. And so Paul goes on, verse 8. He goes, verse 8, he says, He who plants and he who waters. So he's talking about he, he and Apollos. He who plants and he who waters are, the, are one. And each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You're God's field. God's building. So he says, he and Apollos are simply two servants in two different different seasons with one purpose. One purpose, to help nurture and strengthen the new Christians in the faith. And by the way, you see in verse 9 where it says that you're God's field, you're God's building. That's a strong reminder to the church, to the church in Corinth and to us. That the people of God don't belong to the pastor. They do not belong to the pastor. Uh, they belong to God, first and foremost. And one of the chief characteristics of a cult is an overattachment to a human leader. We see it all the time. And, and what Paul's saying is you don't belong to the pastor. Um, the pastor, in essence, belongs to you. The people who make up any local church don't belong to a human leader. They belong to the Lord. And both pastors and the people within the pews have to keep that straight. They both have to keep that straight. And now, in verse 10, he switches from agricultural, agricultural metaphor to architecture to describe Christian ministry. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds it, how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So he says, for any structure to survive, it's got to start with a firm foundation. And Paul says, I laid a firm foundation. This church in Corinth was founded on the proclamation of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I don't know if you know, but churches will start for all sorts of reasons. Um, Some churches start simply because they didn't like the last church that they went to. That happens all the time. makes me think of the old story of the guy who's uh, stranded on a desert island, deserted island. And the rescuers come to him, and there's three buildings there. And they say, well, what are these buildings? And he says, oh, well, this is my home. And they say, oh, okay, well, what's that building? He goes, oh, that's the church I used to go to. And they say, well, what's this other building? Oh, that's the one I go to now. Um, and it's that type of thing. We get, a lot of times churches start because you, simply somebody's mad at the church. The last church they attended, and so they said, I'm going to go do this church. Uh, that happens all the time. Sometimes people will start churches for no other reason than they're simply mad at the church. Sometimes churches will start for political reasons. Uh, we got to get the right people in this church. And people who are the right people are the people who vote just like us. And so we'll start this church over here. Sometimes people start churches for sexual orientation purposes. They want to interpret the scriptures a certain way. And so they'll start a church that will align with all of their views on sexuality and orientation. They start, people start churches for all sorts of reasons. But here's the deal. The only church that actually will last, the only church that will stand the test of time, 
There's only one foundation, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person and the work of Jesus Christ and a personal relationship with whom, with him by work of the Holy Spirit. A church that's founded on anything else won't stand because its foundation isn't sure. Um, it, it simply will not stand. You want to be a part of a church that will last and will stand the test of time? Find one that understands the only foundation that really matters is the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And this is all, everything about the church is about him. It's gathering, it's purpose, it's mission is making much of Jesus Christ. And when Paul came to Corinth, he laid this foundation. He built the foundation on Jesus Christ. And then Apollos came along, and though he shared a similar philosophy of ministry, his assignment in that season was different than Paul's. And Paul didn't bother, that didn't bother Paul. Paul knew his assignment had to be different than his. They had a different assignments in different seasons for the work of Christ to continue to go. And by the way, um, I got time and I can see the clock this week. This is applicable for our situation at TCF because Rick, like a master builder, laid a solid foundation at TCF. Amen? And we praise God for that. But that was his assignment in his season. And though our philosophy of ministry is similar, our season and our assignments are vastly different. I got an email the other day <laughs> um, that said, they never sign them, which is always great, that said, you don't do everything just like Rick. And I thought, you're right. We're two different humans. And I don't do everything just like Rick on purpose. And it's not because at any point I thought Rick was wrong, but because we're in different seasons, and I have a different assignment. You know, in 1980, when TCF was started, according to Pew Research, um, in the United States, 90% of people said they identified as Christians. 90% in 1980. That number carried all the way through 1992. 90% of people in America identified as Christians. Now, does that mean all of them were actually walking as Christians? Oh, heavens no. But it means at least they were sympathetic to the Christian cause. 90% in 1980 all the way through 1992. The percentage of people who identified as nuns, who had no religious affiliation all during that time, was 5%. That's 1980 all the way through 1990. You want to know what the percentages are today? The people who identify as Christians in our culture today is 58, 58 to 60 percent. The people who identify as, uh, as uh, the nuns, religiously unaffiliated, it's 33 percent. Which now here's all the, here, you know, whatever those statistics, you can make statistics up all the time. Um, but here's what it does mean: it means we're in different seasons as a church, does it not? And it means sometimes we have to do some things a little bit differently. And that's okay. And you can look at that as a person who's been at TCF for a long time, and you could say, well, I just don't like the way it's going. Or you could say, we're in a different season, and he has a different assignment. And my role as a parishioner, as a person who belongs to this church, this is my home church, is that i got to get behind the work of the gospel and what's taking place in my church now. And that's, that's an attitude adjustment for, for some of us. But that has to take place, for TCF continue to be united in its mission going forward. And that's what Paul and Apollos did really, really well. 
They said, okay, we have two different assignments in two different seasons, but one purpose. The church has one purpose, to make much of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal here at TCF as well. And he goes on, verse uh, 11. I'm sorry, verse, verse 12. And, and now Paul's going to extend the analogy to include a team of builders. Because it's not just Paul. Um, it's you and I, us, collectively, who are called to build up the body of Christ. Look at what he says. He says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, if anyone, not just the, not just the pastor, but if anyone, if anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that, the day, when you say day capitalized, that's referring to judgment day. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort, what sort of work each one has done. So you'll notice the difference between the two types of material. Uh, one of the types of material is not combustible. <laughs> and the other is. The first set is imperishable, imperishable materials, and the fire will not destroy them. But the second set is, it's flammable. It will be burned up. And what Paul's saying is, there's stuff that can be used to build the church spiritually, spiritually. Things that can be used to build the church up spiritually that is good, and it's long-lasting, and it'll stand the test of time. And then there's other stuff. That's not good. And it won't stand the test of time. And you, and you can build with that, but it will not stand the test of time. You can build the church on the latest whims of society. You can build the church on the latest interpretation of Scripture that has nothing to do with the historic confession of the church for the last 2,000 years. You can do that. You can build the church. You can grow a gathering, but those things will not last. And so what Paul's saying is you need to take care that you're building as a church with the right materials. That you're, you're teaching your people the right things, the concepts, the theology, the, the love, the unity. All of these things are built through the slow process of the church gathering week after week, investing in one another's lives, growing with one another, weeping with those who weep, um, rejoicing with those who rejoice. Paul says you got to make sure that you take care, that you're building with the right materials. You got to build for a for a lifetime, and Paul, what he's he's like a foreman who's coordinating this job. He's working with builders to make sure that the church is built right. He has an accurate overview of the work, and he says, "I want to see this thing last." And he says, "If your workmanship, if your workmanship in building up the body of Christ is good, he'll say this in verse fourteen. If your workmanship is good, you'll receive a reward. But if it's not," you'll suffer loss. Look at what he says, verse 14. He says, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So what he's saying is there's an eternal reward for those who work, their work lasts. 
whose work is genuine and is lasting. Now, people will hear that and they'll say, well, wait, 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 wait. Isn't that legalism? No, it's not legalism. Because the gifts that he's given us to use in the building up of the church are all by his grace. They're all by his grace. They're grace gifts, and our salvation doesn't depend upon the work. Um, Our salvation doesn't depend upon the work at all. And sometimes as Christians who love grace and we preach grace strongly at TCF, sometimes we forget that we'll stand before the Lord and all of our life will be evaluated. And our work on behalf of the Lord will be evaluated. And that is sobering, is it not? To know that you're going to stand before the Lord and the work that you've done on behalf of Christ will be evaluated by him. And Paul says, for those who have built, where, who have built, built well, there's a reward. But he also says, for those whose work doesn't stand the test of time, he'll suffer loss. He'll be saved. He will be saved. So their salvation is secure, but the loss will be serious enough. And again, that's a warning to us. There will be a loss. You'll be saved. You'll be secure with the Lord. But the loss will be serious enough. And again, it's a warning to make sure that we're building with things that last. That our craftsmanship is quality. Our workmanship is quality. Because the church, the body of Christ matters to the Lord. We're talking about the souls of the people that Christ died for. And he says, this matters. The work is critical. And your part to play in it is critical for the building up of the body of Christ here at TCF. Your work to play is critical. And if you're not involved in it, by the way, ask yourself, why am I not involved in it? If this is your home church, and only you can answer that question, but if this is your home church, if this is where you say, I belong to these people and these people belong to me, um, ask you, if you're not involved in it, say, why am I not involved in it? Why am I not pitching in and helping out when there's opportunity to do so? And it fits my skill set. Why am I not involved? Because the work matters. The church matters to Christ. Verses 16 and 17. Again, he changes imagery. How much time do I got? Oh, baby. Verse 16. He changes imagery from just a building to the temple. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Whoa. For God's temple is holy. And you are that temple. The you, by the way, there, the you there, do you not know that you are God's temple? The you there is plural. Um, so he's saying all of us You, I, collectively. Uh, He says, um, you are, we are the temple of God. Now, in chapter 6, when we get into chapter 6, Paul tells us that our individual bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But here, he's talking about the church. He's talking about us collectively as the people of God. And the temple, what it did is the temple was all about habitation and representation. It was where the Spirit dwelt, and it was where his holiness was to be represented to the people. And what Paul's saying is, as the church, the the church is the place where God's spirit dwells, and his people are to be holy, to represent his holiness to the watching world. Um, And notice again, Paul says, he he issues a warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, 
God will destroy him. And those are incredibly sobering words. Now, the body of Christ can't be killed. The, the universal church, the body of Christ can't be killed. But the local manifestations of it can be. We've all probably seen churches, local manifestations of the body of Christ that have perished. And what this is, is a strong warning so that each believer in every place would know to take care and ensure that there's unity within the church. Because division and slander and disunity can destroy a church. And the Lord says, to a person that destroys a church, I will destroy him. How seriously does God take the church? How seriously do you take the church? Do you take it as seriously as the Lord takes it? Or do we just play church? Do we play church like we play Monopoly? We just kind of dink around with it. No, no, look how seriously the Lord takes it. He says, you cannot mess with the church. This is my body and my people who I died for. Do not bring division. Do not bring disunity. Do nothing that hurts the church. So, what's he told them so far? He's told them that they're confused on Christian maturity. They're mistaken on Christian ministry. And then lastly, in verses 18 through 23, he'll tell them that they're misled on Christian unity. And I know my time's running out, so I'll just read this quick. Look at what he says. He says, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. They thought The Corinthians, the culture that the message of the gospel was foolishness. He says, so if you think you're wise in this stage, actually embrace the message of the gospel. Become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of, the, of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. You see what he's saying? He's saying, the Corinthians were saying, we belong to Paul. We belong to Apollos. We belong to Peter. And Paul's saying, no, you don't. You don't belong to them. They belong to you. We belong to each other because ultimately in Christ, we belong to God. There's an interconnectedness by way of the Spirit that we all belong to God because we're in Christ. And Paul, Paul, he doubles down because he says earlier in chapter 1, he says, let he who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here, here he says, so let no one boast in men. Let nobody boast in men. Again, emphasizing because we're in Christ, we belong ultimately to the Lord. And it's his work through the cross that we boast in. And it's his work through the cross that we find our identity in. And my time's up. So here's what I want to do. I want to close by offering three pieces of pastoral advice. Three pieces, simple, straightforward pieces of advice on being a contributing member to the body of Christ. Because we're all called to be contributing members of the body of Christ. And it takes shape differently for each one of us. Um, But we're all called to be contributing members to the body of Christ. So how do we do it? Let me offer three pieces of pastoral advice. And each one, if you're a note taker, each one will start with the phrase, focus less on. So here's the first one. Focus less on the mechanics of ministry 
and more on the grace of Christ given to you. Focus less on the mechanics of ministry and focus more on the grace of Christ given to you. What happened in Corinth and what happens so often in the body of Christ is people will start to focus on leadership and they'll start to focus on the structure of the church and the stuff that's going on, the stuff that needs to be done, the stuff that's going just kind of going hokey. And they'll say, well, we need to fix all of this. And they will lose track. What happens is they will just automatically lose track of Christ and his grace given to them. They'll look around and they'll say, yeah, I'm saved, but now I have a project to do, and this is my project. And this is what was going on with the Corinthians, what the Corinthians were doing. And they got into a big argument all about their leaders. And the trick, here's the trick. You want to be a contributing member in the body of Christ? The trick is, the trick in ministry is to focus less on the mechanics of ministry and more on Christ's work through the cross. And let me tell you, that is a, a learned skill to be able to do that, to focus less on the mechanics of ministry. When you th- see things that are going wrong or you see things, maybe they're not going wrong, they just don't fit your style and you get a little bit upset about it. Uh, it's a learned skill because there's so many day-to-day frustrations in ministry and it can keep you from staying focused on Christ. And like I said, it's a learned skill, which is why Paul tells Timothy not to appoint young believers to leadership because it takes time. It take, it's a skill you have to learn. It's why at TCF, we have a volunteer policy that says you have to be a member of our church for some time before you can volunteer in any position. Because we don't want you to focus on the mechanics of ministry, on what's wrong or what's right or what we can fix, what project I can take on. But we want you to stay focused on the grace of Christ given to you in and through the cross. What happens is when a person focuses on the mechanics of ministry and there's goof-ups and there's mistakes. By the way, can you believe there's goof-ups and mistakes in the church but when there's goof up, I, you know, I account, when, in, in, anytime I do a church thing, you got to factor into your equation that 30% of it's going to be hokey. You just have to. Uh, otherwise, you're going to be terribly frustrated. But when you see mistakes and goof ups, um, and when you focus on those things, have you noticed that everything in your walk with the Lord kind of goes haywire? And you're no longer resting in a state of grace and walking in a state of joy with the Lord, you're walking around kind of agitated and angry all the time. But when you actually focus in on the Lord and what he's done for you, his work in your life and the lives of other people, suddenly all the other things that you were once mad about, kind of all of those kind of fade away and you come into a clearer focus with the Lord and what he's doing in your life. And it actually helps you keep going, trusting the Lord despite all of the mistakes around you. So first piece of advice, focus less on the mechanics of ministry and more on Christ's grace given to you. Here's the second piece of advice. Focus less, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but focus less on the leader's gifts and more on the lordship of Christ. Focus less on the leader's gifts and focus more on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because listen, we're just like Corinth in this. We're a culture and a church culture where we love celebrity. We love celebrity. We love sound bites. And we subtly, very little by little, 
What happens is when you love celebrity and you love sound bites and you attend to church and you keep focusing on the leader's gifts, whatever they may be, what happens is little by little you start finding your faith rooted in a leader rather than the Lord. And that is a tremendous mistake, but it's one that's easy to do. It's a tremendous mistake. And it's the reason why when a leader falls, oftentimes the reason it's so crushing to us is because we've rooted a sense of our identity in that person. But what does Paul say here about leadership, about Christian ministry? A pastor is simply a servant, and he's under orders. He's under orders. He's, I said this a couple weeks ago. He's a nobody telling everybody about somebody. That's the work of a pastor. He's a nobody telling everybody about somebody, and that somebody better be the Lord. It, not, it should not be about himself. It should be about the Lord. So you want to be a part of a, you want to be a, a, a contributing member to a healthy, unified church who has a vibrant witness in the community. Um, focus less. You got to focus less on the leader and more on the Lord. Don't find your identity in a pastor. Don't find your identity in the church itself. Find your identity in the Lord and what he has done for you. The most validating experience of your life is that you're a Christian. That's the most, I mean, when you stop and actually think about it, the, most val, the thing that validates you more than anything else in this world is the fact that Christ has chosen you. He's died for you. He's forgiven you. He's given you new life in his name. And when he looks upon you, because you're in Christ, he delights in you fully. That's the most validating experience of your life. So don't focus on a, don't focus on a leader. Focus more on the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the third one. Focus less on what you've done for Christ and more on what he's done for you. Focus less on what you've done for Christ and more on what he's done for you. Now, we're talking about how we're called to be contributing members of the body of Christ. We're called to that. We're called to contribute to the building up of the body of Christ. And sometimes what happens is, in the body of Christ, I've seen this over 22 years of ministry, I've seen this happen all sorts of times. What happens is because we give of our time and our talents and our treasure, it can, if we're not careful, it can breed a sense of entitlement about the church. It can breed a sense of entitlement. This church belongs to us. And therefore, I get to have my way in it. And again, I've seen this so much over the last 22 years. You want to be a contributing member of the body of Christ? Shoe fly. Focus less on what you've done for Christ and more on what he's done for you. And when you meditate on the fact that God offered his very best, his only son, who bled and died for you so that you can be forgiven of sin, and then three days later he rose from the grave so that you can receive new resurrection life when you put your faith in him. When you realize that, when that penny drops in your soul, what will happen is it will actually enable you to continue with the contribu- your contribution in building up the body of Christ in ways that will strengthen the church's unity, that will strengthen the church's witness, that will strengthen the church's focus, that will strengthen the church's outreach. But it all, Now listen, it all comes out of what Christ has done for you personally, what he's offered personally, when he offered himself. And then in turn we offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Romans 
chapter 12, for him and his purposes. But it all flows out of what he's done. So focus less on what you've done for Christ and more on what he's done for you in and through the cross. And that'll enable you to say, well, I want to contribute. Because he has done this for me, because he lived, he came and lived and died and rose again and gave me new life, because he offered his very best, then I in turn want to offer myself as a living sacrifice for him and his purposes. Amen? Why don't you stand? I'll pray and I'll let you go. I've kept you too long. And Debbie and the children's ministry are waiting. Well, Father, we, uh, we want to be people who are contributing to the building up of the body of Christ here at TCF. And we pray, Father, that as we consider our role and our, the, the work that you've called us to do, that we would do it well unto you, that we would build with materials that will last because we know that the church matters. And we pray, Father, that all of this will be done in such a way um, that it doesn't drain us, but that your love given to us in Christ will fuel us for this work. And we pray that as we leave here and we go back into our homes with our families, back into the neighborhoods in which you've called us to live and to work and to witness, back into the jobs that you've given to us, that the good news of the gospel would come spilling out through our lips when opportunities present itself and would, come, uh, would find, its, uh, find its way out through the work of our hands. We trust you for these things. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.